0: Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And as you can hear, my voice is a bit destroyed. Uh, I've been sick with something that might or might not be COVID since the beginning of the week. My throat is like very raw. My nose is runny. So yeah, I'm going to try to record this. The sound will be weird. Things should be back to normal for the next episode. So please please bear with me uh, on this one. So, in any case, this week we have Meta planning a Twitter competitor that would integrate with the Fediverse using the ActivityPub standard. We have news about AMD hardware that might make it the definitive choice for fast enthusiasts, even it it really was already the default choice if you liked free and open-source software. We have DuckDuckGo succumbing to the sirens of AI-powered search results and we have a full roadmap for Flathub in 2023, and more details about the payment support they plan to implement. So, as always, all the links I use to create this podcast are in the description below, and as always, this podcast is user-funded for now, so if you want to keep it without ads and sponsors, please consider uh, subscribing to my Patreon, which helps this podcast keep going. So, let's dive in with the first topic. For some reason, it seems like Meta, which if you don't know is the company behind Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and a lot more stuff, uh, they're seeing Twitter as a competitor, even if it even in its current state. And so first they introduced their own version of Twitter Blue called Meta Verified, which lets you pay $12 per month uh, to get a blue check mark on your on your Instagram and Facebook account and it gives you access to direct support and a few other things, it still will show you just as many ads as everyone else, and it still will data mine your profile. But yeah, they introduced that as well for some reason. And Now they actually want to apply their usual strategy, which is just copying the competitor and see if they can kill it this way. So they're working on a dedicated application for people to post text-based updates just like Twitter. Now, that's not necessarily super interesting because, well, it's just another effort of Meta to try and copy something that they see as a threat. And yeah, mostly these efforts tend to fail unless they integrate the feature in an already existing app. Every time they launched a separate app, it kind of died really quickly. So that's not super interesting. What is interesting is that this thing would be decentralized and would be interoperable with Mastodon and other Fediverse applications because it would support the ActivityPub standard. So this app would be codenamed P92, which probably will not be the final name, or at least let's hope so, because that's not super eye-catching, or or, yeah, it's not a great name. And it would be spearheaded by the Instagram people. Uh, The person who runs the project is the person that leads Instagram currently. And it would also let people log in into the app using their Instagram account. Which probably means that they recognized that the use case for this is probably more creators than regular people. So it's probably more people on Instagram uh, than people on Facebook. Because, well, creators are not really on Facebook as far as I know. Uh, At least I'm not and I don't know any that are. But Instagram seems a little bit more popular <laughs> for, for people like that. So maybe they, they're expecting to, to launch this kind of application with Instagram support behind it. So creators can actually like have another platform without having to create another account. Maybe it's something like that. So it would be decentralized. It would be interoperable with ActivityPub. And as they said, the minimal viable product would be to let users broadcast posts to people on other servers. Which means that, yes, it's decentralized. Although, how would that work with probably something that would be closed source? Like, I don't think they will let people run their own servers. So maybe the fact that they call it decentralized just means that it is interoperable with other servers that would be able to read the text messages and that people using this P92 app would be able to read messages from people on other ActivityPub-compatible services. It's not very clear right now. They might just have slotted that in as a buzzword, like they're seeing Mastodon being talked about, and they want to jump on that bandwagon as well, not just to say, hey, we're creating a Twitter clone, but hey, we're creating a Twitter clone, but we're also listening to the rest of the community. I don't know what they're thinking about this, Uh, The the basic features would include embedded links in posts, verification badges, of course it would probably integrate with that new meta-verified program, Uh, it would let people share images and videos, it would let you follow people, like posts. So yeah, it's Twitter or Mastodon, but by Meta. And of course, they already said that it will share data across Meta platforms, so you can expect the usual amount of profiling and data mining on this P92 app, and all the data collected there will be shared back with Instagram and Facebook, and all your data on Instagram and Facebook will also be shared on P92 to show you ads and stuff like that. So it looks like they at least have some kind of monetization strategy, which is more user data being taken away from users. Now, this is pretty interesting still, because... If this doesn't end up being the usual meta-failure to copy somebody else, which generally happens, they create a clone of something, it doesn't work and they shut it down about a year later, uh, if it doesn't fail like that, it might mean that there will be an influx of new users on the Fediverse, and maybe it's a chance to open up the social network landscape. Uh, because it would break from the current silo model that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and others have created. Now, personally, I would never use P92 because it's from Meta. They're like one of the worst companies for privacy, for data collection, for dark patterns in their UI to actually be able to shut down your account or disable some of that data collection. They're a terrible company. There's no way I'm using that. But... For people who find Mastodon too complex that they don't understand it, they don't trust servers from from people that are not big tech companies, which is ironic because I trust servers from individuals way more than I trust servers from meta or big companies. But some people want to have a big name attached to their services. And so for these people, it could be a first step into that world, into the Fediverse. And it could potentially bring a lot more attention to our various services which is pretty cool. Now, if you like to take your free and open source experience to the maximum, and if that includes your UEFI or your BIOS, well, it looks like you're going to have to go with AMD in the future, because apparently they will announce something really soon called OpenSIL, which is Open Silicon Initialization Library, which is a library that comes with core boot support for AMD CPUs. It's a brand new open source project that they're going to talk about really soon in a conference. And it should pick up where AMD left off in Core Boot support a while ago. Uh, AMD had been pretty good on Core Boot support for their devices for a while. But after a few years, contributions started to really dry out. And basically since the Ryzen days, they haven't really published much. They haven't really enabled many things in terms of Core Boot support. Uh, They just rely on the manufacturer's BIOS or UEFI and they haven't really pushed it forwards. Uh, Basically, their latest contributions were just for a few Chromebooks with AMD APUs. Now, apparently, AMD's chief firmware architect will hold a talk at the OCP Regional Summit in Prague uh, and that talk is called Open Source Firmware in AMD Enabled by OpenSIL. And the summary of that talk uh, seems to indicate that it will explore the roadmap for open sourcing that library, OpenSIL, and that they will have demonstrations with Core Boot running on AMD systems. Now, apparently some people are concerned that it might be limited to AMD server hardware and not be intended for consumer-grade Ryzen CPUs, but since it will be based on an open source library, maybe it could then be extended by people who want to contribute uh, support for these CPUs through OpenSIL. What I'm thinking is that they wanted to have some kind of intermediary layer that would allow them to add support into a single library so they don't have to develop support for every single device for Core Boot. They can just have this intermediary library that would probably be easier to extend to support newer hardware. And so that would probably make more sense if it was also intended for all Ryzen CPUs and all Ryzen devices. Now, in any case, whatever they're planning to do, having a complete open source experience on AMD, from the BIOS or the UEFI, to the drivers for the CPU and to the GPU, it would really make it a clear winner uh, for most FOSS enthusiasts and for Linux users over the usual Intel and Nvidia combo we often see in laptops, even from Linux manufacturers. Like, I understand why Linux manufacturers don't really ship full AMD systems, because AMD GPUs on laptops are really hard to come by. They don't produce a lot, they don't have many reference partners, and even in the Windows world, you will see way more Intel plus Nvidia or AMD plus Nvidia combos than full AMD laptops. But, as soon as we have full driver support, for the booting experience, for the CPU, for the GPU, and everything is open source, I really will have a hard time justifying not having a full AMD device uh, running Linux out of the box from these Linux manufacturers. Now, as the AI craze keeps going with Bing and its ChatGPT, Google and its pretty much failure of an AI called BARD that they introduced recently, it looks like even the, let's say, more ethical uh, search engines are trying to add AI capabilities as well. And the latest one is DuckDuckGo. They just do not want to be left behind in the current AI arms race. And so they announced this week an AI-powered summarization feature called Duck Assist. Uh, it's in the exact same vein as what Google has announced or what Microsoft has announced uh, in Bing with ChatGPT. Uh, except it's not like a convers- conversational AI. It's just something that will summarize uh, stuff that they find on the internet and give you that direct answer in your query. So they will use GPT technology, but they will also use technology from Anthropic, which is another AI-related startup founded by ex-OpenAI employees. Now, they combine this technology with their own indexing of Wikipedia and the Britannia Encyclopedia so they can provide quick summaries in search results. Now, apparently Wikipedia is 99% of the sources that they will use for now, though. And the new feature is in beta. You cannot access it yet on the web interface of DuckDuckGo. You can only access it through their applications and through their browser extensions. Still, they plan to roll it out to everyone in the coming weeks. You won't need an account or a login to access it, Uh, but you will need to speak English because it's the only language that it currently supports, which seems to be the case with most of these AI-related tools. Uh, They all seem pretty much focused on English, which kind of limits their potential. I mean, yes, a lot of people in the world can speak English, even if they don't live in an English-speaking, well, a native English-speaking country, but at some point if they want to democratize this they're gonna have to make sure that it works with many other languages and this might be a little bit more tricky. Now the goal DuckDuckGo states uh, with this new AI is obviously to help users get a direct answer from the search engine so you don't have to if you're looking for a small nugget of information if you're looking for a quick answer like what's the release date of this thing You don't want to click on a website having to scroll five paragraphs uh, to read why this game exists or why this publisher developed this game until you find the release date at the very bottom of the article after five ads. Uh, You want that answer right now and so it can be displayed immediately in the search engine thanks to that Duck Assist AI which is going to grab the information. These summaries will only appear when DuckDuckGo thinks it's actually useful in regards to the user's query, which means it's probably going to be limited to relatively simple uh, questions and simple answers. It probably won't be able to completely summarize, I don't know, a a specific historical period in just a few lines. It's probably going to be more for yes or no questions, specific dates, and, and just a definition of something to help the user better understand what they're looking for it will still let people know that that answer has been automated, they will make it clear that it's an AI that wrote this, and it's been designed to only appear when the answer has a very, very high probability of being correct, Uh, which is more than what we can say about a Bing solution or Google solution, which definitely do state stuff that is completely false with the highest of confidence. Uh, The company still recognizes that the answer will not be right 100% of the time which is the main problem with these AI tools. I understand why they're useful and they will definitely be a big part of how we use the web and how we search for information in the future but as long as the confidence in the information isn't 100% they should not be deployed for everyone because not only will they reduce the traffic to various websites that they crawl and that they use to generate these automated summaries generally without the consent of the website owner they will also display answers that could be wrong and if you know the general public and the people who use the web they will stop at that answer they won't look for anything else unless it's blatantly false like the date is evidently completely incorrect for example You're asking the AI, which day is it? And they're telling you it's Sunday, 1988. Uh, (laughs) Of course, yes, you're going to say, no, that's not right. But if it's a summary that has a few mistakes in it, a few errors, people would just gobble that up and regurgitate this information again and again. They will not look to verify this information. We know that. People already don't do that with articles and links. They will do it even less with a search engine. Now at least DuckDuckGo will only use reputable sources and uses Wikipedia and Britannia Encyclopedia. They don't seem to crawl every single website to reuse the data. But it's still an issue because it means that people will probably access Wikipedia less. Although I think Wikipedia has a paid program to actually access this data and use it in snippets. So maybe they're already getting compensated for that. But in general, for AI search tools, uh, they will need to gather consent from the websites that they crawl to get that information. I think it's a necessary part of the process because you cannot just reuse content like that, like anytime you want, in any way you want, even if it means that you're going to basically destroy that content in the end. Because if you reduce traffic, you reduce monetization, and so maybe the blog or the website will just close which means that you will not have any new data sources to base your AI search on it. So it's an equilibrium thing. If you want the AI model to work, you need the content behind the AI to stay funded. So if you bypass that funding, you're not going to have any content to train your AI on. And the second thing is the accuracy. If the AI cannot be 100% accurate, then it should not be deployed. That, that's about it. Now let's talk about FlatHub. Uh, we already talked about it last week and how they were looking to add payments. Uh, we had talked about their proposal that was uh, added to the plaintext group's GitHub repository seeking funding to actually enable the development of all these payment options uh, to let users fund developers' work and pay for applications. Now this week they actually published an updated blog post which is outlining the roadmap for 2023. Now, it's also written by Robert McQueen, which is the CEO of Endless OS and the president of the GNOME board, and also the person that had written the proposal initially. Now, their focus seems to be on evolving FlatHub from a build service that lets developers build their applications and publish them to a full-on app store that lets developers completely publish and fund their work. Uh, They also focus on the economic barriers uh, that prevent the app ecosystem from growing and the various challenges that they're facing to accomplish these goals. So apparently Flathub has has about 2,000 apps currently with 700,000 downloads per day, which is pretty big and which amounts to 88 terabytes of data per day, which is huge. So obviously they have a CDN because yeah, you, you just cannot serve that kind of data with a regular server. They say that Flatpak has solved the difficulties that developers had to actually distribute and let people discover their work, something that I actually agree on. Uh, When you relied on distributions to actually accept your app in their repos, it was very hard to to just publish your app, have some testing, have some feedback, have some users. You could create your own PPA, but then you would have to host your own server, uh, well, PPA or repo for other distributions, and then people would still have to know about your repository to use it. They could just not discover it natively. Whether if you were accepted in a distro's repo, you could at least be seen in the various app stores that they used. With Flatpak, you can just package your stuff, publish it on Flathub, and people can find you, which is way better for developers uh, than the usual distro packaging stuff. Uh, Some packages were never accepted in distributions, And some packages took years to be accepted in a distro's repo even though they were already widely used by a lot of people. The model just did not work well. So yeah, I agree that Flatpak and Flathub do solve that approach. Now in terms of what they've been working on, uh, they concluded the first series of features in Flathub's web app to let users and developers create accounts if they want to, to let users pay, now currently only using Stripe, and to let developers verify that they own a specific app so they can set a price for their work. They also worked on setting up a legal entity because that will be needed to ensure that they can handle payments and donations to the app developers. They haven't found the right structure yet. And I think this will be the main point of contention for people who are afraid that Flathub might turn into, I don't know, a monopoly of app distribution or something. Because if they go from a nonprofit, to a separate structure, even if this structure only handles payment, but it's a company or a corporation or something that people associate with something bad, then they will lose instant trust with users, even though it's absolutely necessary because you cannot handle uh, monetary influx with every single structure in the world. You have to make sure that you're legally protected uh, from various problems or incidents, and you cannot do that with every single legal structure. They're also working on a governance model that will ensure transparency, which might reassure people who were afraid that stuff was just going to go unchecked. Uh, So they've set up a group from people, uh, various people from GNOME, from KD, from FlatHub, and they're going to set up a board that will make decisions in the open transparently. Now, they also said that they managed to get $100,000 in funding in 2023, apparently from the Endless Foundation, Uh, which isn't surprising since this proposal and this push is being done by people from Endless as well, and they are hoping to reach 250,000 US dollars at the end of the year to ensure that they can develop everything that is needed to realize that vision and to have more full-time employees. Now, Flathub will also be launching their redesign soon and a series of focus groups to let the community express their concerns or their enthusiasm. And... Judging from the comments on last week's uh, news video where I talked about this topic, people are really worried uh, that Flathub might become a monopoly, that handling payment will turn them into an evil corporation, that they will take a huge cut of the payments, uh, that they will stifle every other packaging format, and that they will basically control Linux or whatever. You never know, it might happen. Uh, It has happened in the past, uh, some very... Uh, well-intentioned ideas or companies have turned sour in the past. It could happen, but I don't think this will be the case for Flathub, and I will have a video on that exact topic on my YouTube channel in a few days, so stay tuned for that and go check out my channel. It's called The Linux Experiment uh, on YouTube. You probably already know this. You might have heard about Vanilla OS, which is a very interesting distro. They, They provide pure vanilla GNOME, on an Ubuntu-based, but as an immutable file system, an immutable system. It lets you choose which packaging formats you want to use, Flatpak, Snap, App Images, or the whole three, and it implements containers using DistroBox if you need access to a mutable file system or immutable system, and you want to toy around with it. Uh, so this distro is interesting, I will definitely take a look at it in the future, because, well, I want to cover more distros on my YouTube channel, and, uh, and I want to cover distros that are specifically interesting for a specific thing, not just Ubuntu clones or, or stuff that changes themes and default apps. I want to cover more interesting distros with specific purposes. So we'll talk about Vanilla iOS on the YouTube channel soon. But in the meantime, it looks like they've decided that Ubuntu isn't the base that they need for their distro. They're working on moving from Ubuntu to Debian SID, and they have a few reasons for that. The first one is that, well, they're called vanilla OS, they want a vanilla experience, and Debian is closer to that than Ubuntu. Basically, Ubuntu makes a lot of decisions that are super opinionated on the packages they ship, on the packaging formats they use, on the GNOME implementation that they ship, and so vanilla OS developers had to revert a ton of these decisions to move back to the original GNOME vision and the original system. Uh, so they wasted a lot of time and they won't have to do that by using Debian. They also will not have to fight snaps anymore because it seems like a lot of applications that were installed in the Ubuntu container were snap transitional packages, which is basically you're trying to install a package, a Debian package through apt or apt-get, and what you get is a snap. And these snap packages didn't work well in the container. And they will also get more flexibility, to release their updates. They will not have to follow Ubuntu's release schedule. And, well, it's Debian and Dev packages, so they're already familiar with it, which also explains why they didn't move from an Ubuntu base to a, let's say, Fedora base, which would be just as vanilla. Now, they're going to stick with Debian packages, which, are, which they're familiar with. And I can understand the move. At some point, if you don't really agree with the decisions of your base, of Ubuntu, if you have to revert all their personal changes, all the stuff that they changed to make Ubuntu Ubuntu, then making use of Ubuntu as a base just doesn't make sense. Uh, You you will be way better off with Debian because, well, basically Ubuntu is a fixed snapshot, uh, if if I'm not mistaken, Ubuntu, uh, when it releases, is a fixed snapshot of Debian uh, unstable or Debian testing that they just tested. And so you can get to the same results by using Debian, but you don't have to fight all the things that they introduced. And it's also why I don't really understand why Mint hasn't made the jump from its default version. They already have uh, the Linux Mint Debian edition, which seems to provide the exact same experience as the Linux Mint Ubuntu-based edition. So I don't really understand why they keep using Ubuntu as a base since they keep fighting against snaps and reverting decisions that they make and they don't even ship their default desktop environment either. So I think Mint would also probably benefit from moving away from the Ubuntu base because they are just not in agreement with Canonical's decisions on that base. Now speaking of Ubuntu based distros, we have updates to elementary OS 7. Uh, The initial release was super polished, as always, but left me a little bit underwhelmed because they still make the same decisions that turned me off of it uh, with the 6.1 cycle. Uh, But still, their semi-rolling release model is still kicking in, they added regular updates to the desktop, to the apps, and so first, uh, the file manager now got a new menu in the header bar, a little cogwheel uh, menu which they call an app menu. It's basically the same thing as the hamburger menu in GNOME applications. And this app menu is there to let users discover more of the features of the application. All of these features were already available. They were in the context menu when you right-clicked a folder or inside of a folder when you clicked on the background of the file manager. Uh, but apparently some people were just having a hard time finding out these existed. So they added this app menu that will let you zoom in and out or increase the icon size, basically. It will let you enable or disable double-click or single-click to navigate. It will let you change sorting options, show hidden files, and the like. You could already do this uh, in the file manager. It's not new features that were already there, but they were hidden in the context menu. So now people will have an easier time discovering it. They also completely revamp their network indicator, the thing in the top right corner that lets you connect to Wi-Fi networks or VPNs or stuff like that. It will now show all available network options as circular buttons instead of toggles, which is more aesthetically pleasing and also easier to understand, more legible. It will also show you all the VPNs you configured earlier, so you can toggle them on and off way more easily, and you can even toggle multiple ones at the same time. You can also turn on airplane mode just uh, with one click and it will be toggled with a middle click on the network indicator as well so it's even faster. They apparently also fixed a lot of stuff in their window manager called Gala uh, so they will get smoother animations, better performance, uh, they fixed some issues with the window shadows and they fixed a problem that meant you could accidentally close windows when you were using 3 finger gestures on your touchpad uh, basically, you were swiping up to reveal the overview uh, mode, the multitasking view. But it also registered as a three-finger tap, which means middle click, which means it closed the window. Uh, so they fixed that as well. And they also added a the Flatpak repair feature to the App Center, which means that if you had issues with runtimes, refusing to install or, or bugging out, uh, now you'll get a, a repair feature that lets you, well, fix that. Or automatically fixes it, at least. Uh, and you will also get a new message in the App Center in the Updates tab uh, to let you know when everything is up to date and the last time updates were checked for. So you don't have to click repeatedly to check for updates. You'll know that everything is already up to date. So, good updates all around. Uh, I I haven't moved back to Elementor OS. I've been tempted to, but... I just feel that GNOME has the edge nowadays. Uh, it wasn't the case for the Elementary OS 5 and 6 cycle. I felt that GNOME was lagging behind. Uh, now GNOME has caught up and surpassed, in my opinion, uh, the Elementary OS desktop. I still really love the look. I really love the attention to detail. I love what they're trying to accomplish, but it's just too limited for me nowadays. Uh, it's it's just not for me anymore but I will still follow very closely what they add to the desktop because I still think it's one of the most interesting projects that there is out there in the Linux world. Now let's keep going with our desktop environment tours because we have some GNOME weekly updates as well. Uh, First, uh, we have GNOME Builder, which will now let you choose a preferred flatpak installation to use when you install new SDKs. Uh, We have the Elastic app that I talked about last week, I think. Uh, It's an app that lets you create animations to add inside of your GDK and LibidVita applications. This app now has joined uh, the GNOME circle. We have a new simple LibidVita app, which is called Sticky Notes, and it just lets you, well, jot down small sticky notes with formatting and colors. Uh, We have updates to Live Caption, which is an application that you can run and will automatically display subtitles. Based either on your desktop or laptop audio, or on your microphone, which means it's a real-time subtitling app uh, only for English for now. Uh, so they have updated it; it's more stable. It should work better. They also updated Tube Converter, which is an application that lets you download videos off of popular services based on YouTube download. Uh, it's seeing a beta. It's being rewritten in C sharp, so the app should download stuff way faster now. It should crash less and they're also apparently working on a Windows version, because, well, with C Sharp, you can port to Windows easily, apparently. And they also changed a few things in the UI to be more legible. I use Tube Converter a lot, but it seems to be getting worse. I didn't get this last update, but nowadays when I download a video off of YouTube to use in my own videos, generally, I re-download some of my old videos that I never backed up. When I download that, the MP4 is corrupted. I cannot play it with VLC I can import it in davinci resolve but it will fail at render so I have to reconvert it using ffmpeg into a move format that now fixes the the issue so I don't know why it does that now it didn't used to but now it does so maybe this new update will fix that problem for me there's also updates to fosh which is the mobile shell that is Not Gnome Shell Mobile, but it exactly looks like Gnome Shell Mobile uh, because it was developed before Gnome Shell Mobile, basically. So far, saw a new release. Uh, It's got a new plugin to let you configure the emergency preferences on the lock screen of your phone. The settings menu was updated visually to look more in line with the current Gnome Quick Settings, so you've got those pill-shaped buttons, uh, and that's about it. Denaro, the personal finance manager, got a new icon which looks better, but it's just an icon. Uh, it got a few UX improvements and it got updated translations. Now it also seems that the GNOME team has published a porting guide for extensions, so they can work on GNOME 44. So now developers have about two weeks to get their extensions ready, uh, which is not a lot. Uh, I think probably they should give app de- uh, app no, not app developers extension developers. Uh, a little bit more time, I think a month would be a minimum, uh, so they can ensure that the stuff that people actually use, uh, like the uh, dash to dog, dash to panel, app indicator stuff, really works immediately out of the box, because that's a main complaint people have. People recognize that GNOME is very extendable, it's very customizable with extensions, but since every extension seems to break with every new GNOME release, They really should give more time to extension developers to make sure that their stuff works well when the new release of GNOME drops. It also looks like for Hindi users, uh, GNOME 44 will be much better because they updated translations across the board, they corrected old ones and they added new ones, so the desktop environment should be way more usable for Hindi uh, speakers. Well, readers in that case. Oh, and and there's also more. I compiled basically two of these GNOME updates blog posts into one. So we have more updates for Loop, which is the new image viewer. It received its brand new image decoder engine that will open support in the future for color profiles, for animated images, and it already supports viewing SVGs. Uh, Telegram, the Telegram client, also got a lot of updates. It now supports GIFs. uh, It now supports viewing message replies it lets you edit messages, it lets you reply to specific messages, and you can compose messages using Markdown. They also added a contacts window to view your saved contacts, and they improved performance as well. And finally we have updates to Pano, which is a fantastic GNOME Shell extension that gives you a visual clipboard manager uh, that just slides from the bottom of the screen, so everything you copy gets copied into that Visual Clipboard Manager, and you can just visually click on one of the items and copy it. Well, it, it's beautiful, and it works really well. You should definitely give it a shot. It's called Pano, P-A-N-O. Uh, and now it uh, it supports GNOME 44. They updated it already. You can mark items as favorites. It supports copying emojis. You can customize how it looks, how the bottom panel feels, how, how tall it gets, etc. You can filter clipboard history by item type, and more. And of course, we also have updates to KDE. So they now have ported the master branch of Plasma to Qt 6. So the work for Plasma 6 is progressing really nicely. And apparently it can already be run today. If you feel adventurous, it's basically complete. It won't be stable, but it's complete. It also looks like they implemented something that a lot of people complained about uh, with Wayland, which is... When the compositor crashes, it takes down all the applications with it. And now this will be fixed in Plasma 6. Uh, When the Wayland compositor crashes, all the applications will resume and pick back up where they left off. And apparently it's also being implemented in GTK. Uh, So yeah, that's one big problem with Wayland that will be fixed and that people will not be able to complain about anymore. And also, it's a very good thing because, well, that sucks. When your computer crashes, you don't want all your work to be lost. It's good that it's fixed. Now, in terms of new features in Plasma, they're adding an option to change the visual intensity of the outline that they added around Breeze windows. That's something that they added in uh, Plasma 5.27 to refine the theme. I think it was a great addition because it made dark mode windows look way more distinct from each other, they didn't mesh into a big black blob. It was way better. But apparently a lot of people were really angry about that change. I do not know why, but they were really angry. And so they even harassed the designers and the developers after the release of this change. They menaced them, they insulted them, which is obviously not okay. And if you do that, you definitely have issues that you need to solve because it's just an outline around Windows. Threatening people for that is just being an idiot. Uh, But yeah, so now they caved in, basically, and they will let you, in pure KD fashion, customize this. So you'll be able to reduce that outline, increase it, or completely disable it. Uh, They also apparently removed the Open With dialog when using apps that are not using portals. Well, they didn't remove that dialog. They removed the new one, and they moved back to the old one. Uh, They had added this new open With dialogue for apps using portals, so basically apps on Wayland uh, that are sandboxed and using permissions, but they had also changed it for apps that didn't use portals, and apparently this new dialogue did not have the exact same feature set as the old one, so they're going to leave the old apps uh, using the old one, and the new apps will use the new one. They also fixed the Breeze GTK theme, So the linked buttons should look better in GDK applications. Linked buttons being, for example, in Rhythmbox, when you see the uh, pause and play button next to the next and previous track buttons, they're all in some kind of a group, so those are linked buttons, and they were not displayed correctly. Now they will be. Uh, They will sort notifications chronologically in the history pop-up, and they improved how window sizes and positions are remembered for multi-screen setups, which was a big change in Plasma 5.27. They really kind of fixed everything about multi-monitor setup. Apparently, there was still some room for improvement. Now, important bug fixes include correctly supporting NVIDIA suspend and resume, uh, with external displays not being disabled anymore after resuming, uh, or icons and text no longer missing after resuming, and they also added a bunch of fixes for KWIN and for the Wayland session. So yeah, Plasma 6 for now, they haven't really announced any groundbreaking revolutionary feature, but it still looks like a really good update. Evolutionary, and probably the the big number change isn't in terms of design or major features, it's more in terms of the underlying libraries, but it still looks like an exciting one, especially for Wayland users. Now, one last small topic before we move on to the gaming news. Uh, I reported last week on the fact that the HP Dev 1 will be discontinued, uh, because that was what was announced in a laconic statement from HP. They just said they sold out the devices, and nothing more, which led to inevitable speculation from everyone on the internet, well, everyone that is interested in that topic anyways, uh, and myself included. Uh, We basically all assumed that it didn't sell well, because it had so many barriers, like being only sold in the US, only sold with a QWERTY keyboard, uh, not having any uh, SKUs, you couldn't change the RAM amount, well, you could open it up and upgrade it afterwards, but you couldn't buy it uh, with anything else than what it came with, so people just assume it didn't work out, and it didn't see any marketing or communication from HP either. So logically, people assume that it failed. But apparently, that's not the case. Uh, a few people close to the project told me that they cannot say anything about the future of Linux devices at HP, but they could say that the HP Dev1 sold well, and according to expectations, their plan was to produce a run of limited size, and that run sold out, and they're happy about that. So it's a big communications problem. HP was extremely vague, which basically opened the door for everybody to speculate. When you launch a product like that, and people say repeatedly on every review and every article, we don't know if that's going to work. It's only in the US. That's a big issue. Uh, It's only in one SKU. That's a big issue. You know that people are skeptical. If you're going to be happy with the sales, just say that you're happy with the sales. Just hire someone that knows how to communicate HP. You could have said something like, we're very happy about the interest the HP Dev 1 received, it is now sold out, we don't plan to produce more of this specific device, Uh, we'll be looking at what we learned with the HP Dev 1 and assess if we can keep serving the Linux community in the future. I don't know, something like that. You're not opening the door. If you don't want to announce any new hardware, you're not locked in. If you want to announce new hardware, you didn't close the door and you conveyed success instead of failure. Just don't say, we we it sold out. Yeah, we're not doing it anymore. Because obviously people are going to interpret that as, is it bombed? You need to communicate better. It's stupid. So thanks for all the people who told me that this speculation was inaccurate, Uh, I still think that they should hire someone at HP to communicate on those things. When you deal with the open source and the Linux community, you need to communicate. It's a community. It needs good communication. You cannot just put out the basic PR one-liner. It just doesn't work and people just start assuming. And let's conclude this podcast with the gaming news. So we only have two little tidbits uh, this, uh, this week. Uh, First we've got a new release for Wine version 8.3. This one brings support for the low fragmentation heap, uh, support for smart cards, and they also bundle the Zydis library by default. All these features I have no clue what they do and no understanding of. Uh, Usually I can basically understand what they added and I can sort of explain why it's important that they did all of this, I have no clue and I could not find information online to guide me, so if you know what that is, well, good for you. Uh, this new version of Wine also fixed 29 bugs, including for Path of Exile, Sacred, Escape from Tarkov, or Saints Row the Third. And the second, more interesting in my opinion, uh, gaming uh, bit of gaming news, is that Valve confirmed that they are not planning to release a next-gen Steam Deck for a few years. As they put it, a true next-gen deck with a significant bump in horsepower won't be for a few years. And again, this wording leaves a lot to be interpreted, because they say a true next-gen deck and they say a significant bump in horsepower. So this absolutely leaves the door wide open for more marginal hardware revisions that would not be considered a true next-gen device, and that would not have a significant bump in horsepower, but that could still get more performance. Or it could just mean that they have plans to release improved versions of the deck with the same internals to keep, let's say, a baseline for developers to target, but maybe with an OLED screen, or or better sticks, or better triggers, or not that the sticks on the triggers are bad, but, I don't know, better buttons, or... Or maybe, I don't know, maybe even a deck mini. Uh, why not? A deck mini with a smaller, more pocketable form factor and the same performance. Who knows? Or maybe a bigger battery. It doesn't close the door to that. So once again, uh, communication is important. If you don't want people to speculate widely, you need to say exactly what you mean and not run around uh, the... how do you say it? Run around the rosy? I don't know. You need to not run around the, the pot, as we say in France. So, but yeah, apparently Valve is very happy uh, with the first year of the Steam Deck, and it seems that 42% of the people who bought a Steam Deck are spending the majority of their Steam gaming time on it, preferring it to their other devices that are capable of running Steam, which is unsurprising. I basically have not played a single game on my PC since I got the Steam Deck. Uh, the only one I did was uh, Darktide because playing it on the Steam Deck, uh, uh, no, nah, just just no, it just doesn't suit that device. Uh, it could run apparently, but it just doesn't suit the device. So I played that on my on my main gaming PC. But every single other PC game I played since I got the deck was on the Steam Deck. I just did not touch my. I don't think I opened Steam in. I don't know on my PC maybe three months. It's uh, it's insane. So yeah, personally, I think that it's a good thing that they don't have plans to release a new, uh, true next-gen Steam Deck soon. I think the deck is enough right now. It Yes, it struggles to run some AAA titles that just released, but apparently these titles are just badly optimized, period. Not just badly optimized for the deck. And the deck was never meant as a full desktop replacement. It was never designed to run every single game out there. So I would rather see them focus on getting more developers on board, getting developers to optimize for it, and maybe work on a small hardware revision with an OLED version or Deck Mini or or something with a bigger battery, whatever, uh, than just trying to immediately work on a Steam Deck 2, which would not make that much sense right now. Okay, this will be enough for this podcast. I think you can hear that my voice is dying and I ran out of subjects, uh, of topics that I wanted to talk about. So, hopefully you enjoyed it, even with the cracked, uh, sick man voice. Uh, I hope it was still uh, audible and not too hard on your ears. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for supporting the podcast for those of you who do. And as always, all the links to the articles are in the description of the podcast in the show notes. You will also get links to my socials and links to support the show if you want to. So thank you all for listening and I guess you will hear me next week. Bye!